0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Some people are really comfortable with it, many still aren't and that's understandable to the extent that uh, in one organisation where I was offering a free webinar on on menopause, it got stopped within a certain department because that person point blank refused to send out any information to all staff even though it had been approved by the organisation. Obviously, their discomfort level was just too high.
2: Well it's about time we got comfortable because regardless of your gender, if you work with a woman over 40, menopause matters to you. I'm Lisa Leong and on This Working Life, it's time to talk menopause at work.
3: Imagine going into one of the most important work interviews of your almost 30 year career and your idea of success is, this will have been good if I come out of it without crying. I'm Janelle Delaney. I work at IBM and I am the Asia-Pacific Delivery Excellence Leader. This was my very real experience. As part of our organisation's promotion program to executive, I needed to submit a business case, go through one hour two-on-one interview and present my view of the future in a 15-minute panel presentation. And so my 30 years of strong track record all came down to this laser-focused opportunity to perform at my best and show this panel what I was made of. I just couldn't concentrate on any preparation. I had lost all my confidence and I just kept crying, even just driving home from the gym. So two weeks before the event, I realized something really wasn't quite right and went off to see my doctor. And the diagnosis was simple. The hormonal imbalance of perimenopause meant I couldn't deal with this very out of the ordinary stressful situation I was in, in the same way that I usually would have. And so the two things coming together had basically completely um, brought me undone yeah who could I tell about what was going on I didn't want to seem like some crazy weak female who just buckled under the pressure so I thankfully did reach out to a long-term colleague and he helped me through the process after a few tears and other things and he took me through a mock interview and I decided to push ahead with the hormone treatment obviously had started to kick in and I um, really got to a more even keel. Why am I sharing my story? The experience I had was horrendous. It wasn't like anything I'd ever experienced, and I really just really didn't know what sort of reaction or support I would get if I spoke out about it. So I was new to the age group. I had no clue of the impacts of perimenopause or menopause and what that could have on a woman's whole wellbeing, and it was something I'd never heard talked about in my workplace. And so I've now taken this through my organisation and we're actually going to make some changes and actually get some information out there around menopause for our women and for our managers. And by the way, I did actually get the promotion, so that was good news.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What I'm observing is women of my generation, so I'm 55, we're the ones that I think, coming through and saying, ah, hello, isn't anyone else experiencing this? Uh, Should we be talking about it? Uh, Can we talk about it?
2: Thea O'Connor is a wellbeing and productivity advisor. She runs
1: menopause training for managers. And then sometimes the women above me, the 60 year old women, some of them are going, will you please be quiet? We have worked so hard, you know, to try and get a level playing field for women. And now you're kind of undermining everything we've worked for. And then the generation coming through though, you know, watch out employers. Um, I've spoken to some very empowered young women who will say things like, really, women are their own worst enemy. As soon as they notice some of the changes, they should be really on the front foot and talking to their manager, this is what I'm going through and these are the supports that I think that I need. And they're saying that uh, uh, delightfully, I think, from a really strong place of knowing their value as a worker. And it's like, well, why wouldn't I be supported?
2: And what do you say to the women who fought so hard to become leaders, say, in their 60s, and they're saying, look, can you please be quiet? You're undermining me.
1: Yes, well, my response to that is I really think that the deepest betrayal is when we betray our own bodies. Um, And it's our bodies that are our only instrument for work. And if we continue to deny and betray that, that's actually not good for anyone. Um, And what really hurts is when women continue to work uneducated and unsupported. That's what hurts women's brand, if you like, the most. Now, just quickly, for those who know nothing about this topic, what Mm. is menopause? Well, menopause, it actually comes from the Greek word menos, which means monthly, and then pause, which is to cease. So menopause is when we stop those monthly menstrual periods in the lead up to menopause, which is called perimenopause. Your hormone levels are are lowering, but also fluctuating. And during that time, those hormonal shifts are thought to be responsible for some really challenging symptoms for some women. Can you give us a quick rundown of some of the symptoms? The symptoms are really diverse and they cover physical, emotional and psychological. Some of the ones that people are most familiar with would be things like the the hot flushes and the night sweats and the insomnia and, say, and, and... Weight gain can occur around that era, that time. Some of the other ones that are lesser known, especially for working women, are some of the mood changes. So women can experience anxiety for the first time in their lives. There's also an increased risk of depression. And sometimes women can also struggle with things like um, brain fog and also short-term memory.
4: My name is Mel Kettle. I'm a communication consultant consultant and i also write a blog called just as juicy where i share information and stories about menopause my most embarrassing moment when i was was when i was speaking at a conference to about 500 people and i suddenly could feel a hot flush coming on. And when I have hot flushes, my brain just goes on strike and I can't remember what I need to say or do. So um, that was a bit of a problem given that I was midway through delivering a keynote address at a conference and I didn't have any notes in front of me. So I made a joke to the audience and said, I can't remember what I was going to say next. I've completely lost my train of thought. I've obviously got menopause brain happening. And fortunately my audience was on my side and they all cracked up laughing. And then that was enough of a a break for my brain to get back into gear and remember what I was saying next. After that presentation I had so many women coming up to me and saying I loved how you explained away what happened to you because of menopause because that happens to me all the time at work and I never know what to say or how to react and I'm just glad that you mentioned menopause in such a public way that helped normalise it.
2: Go Mel. While Mel has been able to take the open and honest route, many women don't speak up because they fear discrimination like ageism.
1: Thea O'Connor. So that's a really understandable concern. And, you know, menopause is a clear indicator of both gender and age. So yeah, in some sections, it probably will trigger gendered ageism. And I do hear from the women who work in really male dominated environments, how difficult it is for them. So I'm not pretending that, that in some contexts, it could provide a raft, another, more stereotypes, you know, on which to judge women not fit for work. And how do you counter that, I guess? Yeah, so I think the way you counter that is by looking at the costs or the risks of not addressing this and the benefits of addressing it. So it's like the business case. And the cost is really high. It's really high to a woman's personal well-being if she doesn't get any little, you know, accommodation to go to the doctor or flexible work practices. Her health and well-being will suffer. But the cost to organisations can also be really high. We know, for example, that organisations who have more women at the top, they perform better financially. Now, there are many barriers to senior women advancing, you know, to to top levels. But I do know that for some women, the silence within an organisation when they were struggling with menopausal symptoms was just too much. And some women do leave their job or opt for a lower position. So creating a menopause-friendly workplace can actually help more women advance in their careers and that's actually good for the organisation as well. Melissa McGowan left her leadership role
2: after hitting menopause in her early 40s.
5: So I was working as a people and culture director in a global multinational business and just was experiencing a number of challenging symptoms and in addition didn't know what was going on. So it was, you know, it was quite a challenging time and I was the only female on a team of six, you know, male executives in a in a pretty male dominated um, industry and environment. Really, my first instinct in that situation was to keep things relatively to myself. I did I did explain to my boss because I remember the day that I'd been to the doctor and finally found out what was going on, and I was due to run a sort of an executive offsite, and I just couldn't be there. So I did share with him. But in general, I I played my cards pretty close to my chest. And I, I think there was a number of reasons for that, including things like not wanting to be seen to have be having additional challenges. And I think working through how I identified as someone who was going through premature menopause and what that meant to me, I just didn't feel comfortable sharing it all the time. So it meant that I kind of endured some of the physical symptoms, you know, a lot of sleepless nights, uh, hot flushes in meetings, uh, increased anxiety, a number of other physical things. I kind of endured that more or less on my own. And I think that had a compounding effect where, you know, I'd started to really normalise stress levels that were too high um, and it made the situation worse. So I was finding a an amazing integrative doctor who finally sort of said to me, hey, Melissa, you need to sort of slow the F down and look at the emotional side of this journey as well. That really helped me sort of step into reframing menopause for me, which ultimately has been empowering and a big part of why I've stepped away from my corporate career to, you know, coach and support not just females because I think this plays into inclusion in the workplace, but I'm pretty passionate about helping women learn to really kind of deliver the goods in their work setting but also focus on their vitality and have what I call mojo because I think many of us are unprepared for the perimenopause journey and we're putting our heads down or we're, you know, we're not wanting to talk about it and if we're already learning to prioritise ourselves and our vitality ahead of that big change, then we're more likely to move through that without it being, you know, such perhaps a debilitating and negative uh, crushing experience that it can be.
2: Sydney Colusi is from the University of Sydney where she's researching
6: menopause and menstrual leave. I think that there's this really harmful fiction that we have of this ideal and bodiless worker who has no reproductive health issues and therefore has no reproductive care obligations and when we perpetuate this fiction, it sort of makes workers who are dealing with reproductive health issues somehow look as though they're less committed to their job or their paid work, when in fact it's just a reality that all workers, regardless of age or gender, are going to have to address reproductive health issues at some stage or another. So I think we're really entering a stage in discourse about labor rights and women women's rights and well-being at work, where we're trying to reckon with how we deconstruct this notion of the ideal worker and how we make the workplace more supportive of all people and in recognition of the fact that all people have reproductive lives and responsibilities.
2: And Sydney, tell me about the findings of the British Medical Survey into menopause. Let's get some data in here.
6: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, this is fascinating and honestly quite upsetting. So the British Medical Association released a report in October 2020. They had surveyed over 2,000 doctors on the effects of menopause at work. And so, first of all, the majority of respondents said they weren't receiving any support from their employer to help manage their symptoms. And the major finding from this report is that as a result of unsupportive working environments, uh, these doctors were reducing hours, uh, leaving management roles, uh, moving to lower paid positions, or just retiring early from the profession because of menopause-related difficulties at work and the fact that they were receiving no workplace support whatsoever. So... The medical profession is prematurely losing these highly experienced staff and leaders in their field. And I think that this really brings us to the business and social responsibility case for recognizing and accommodating menopause in the workplace. Because if menopausal employees are retiring early, like they seem to be in the medical profession in the UK, this means employers have to invest considerable resources into recruiting, training, and hiring replacements And then people are also retiring and often the peak of their careers. So these women are leaders in their fields and this affects gender diversity in already a male-dominated profession like medicine. And this also contributes to the gender pay gap and workers are being forced to leave jobs they love. And I think that we should all accept that that isn't okay and that we need to address that.
2: And what about the interplay between gender bias and uh, potentially leaders being mainly male and therefore it's kind of hard to raise issues of menopause and even if you're a female leader potentially you've you know you fought so hard to get there do i raise it you know am i showing
6: vulnerability here
2: how does that all uh, play out do you think sydney
6: so for example the british medical association report found that about half of respondents were really hesitant to seek support from management or their superiors because, you know, it's they were mostly male managers and they felt that their experience would not be understood or that they would be stigmatised or labelled as irrational or, you know, they would be... Uh, not put up for promotions and this is echoed in the broader academic literature where the majority of workers are unwilling to disclose their menopause related symptoms because mostly their managers are either male or younger than them. Sydney found that while menopause policies are a
2: fairly recent phenomenon at work, menstrual policies have been around for about a century.
6: Yes, I said a century. So the first menstrual policy was rolled out in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and during that period it was very common, there was sort of like this general medical suspicion that if women were working in industrial factory jobs while they were menstruating, this would somehow harm their fertility or their ability to have children later in life. So in response to this medical concern, uh, two to three days paid menstrual leave was introduced at the legislative level as sort of like a protective pronatalist policy to ensure that women's bodies were protected during menstruation and that at a later stage in life, they would be able to fulfil their reproductive and maternal functions. So obviously the key problems with that sort of policy is that it reinforces women's unpaid Mm. care obligations and also reinforces this biological stereotype that workers are somehow less fit for paid work while menstruation. So obviously the policy area has evolved since then. And then 20 years later, we saw menstrual policies emerging in Japan and Indonesia in the 1940s, again with an overarching concern with women's fertility and protecting women's maternal roles. But something we've noticed is that even if that's a commonality across countries, it also plays out very differently in each context So, for example, in Indonesia, menstrual leave has become a source of class division. So, while women working um, in office jobs, for example, in commerce and finance, might be really against menstrual leave because they say it's embarrassing or it's contrary to women's rights, other women who work in industrial jobs, like in mining, are in favour of the policy because it offers a really needed reprieve from inadequate workplace sanitation. So now menstrual leave is either implemented or emerging in over 17 countries across the world as far as we know. So it's sort of a rapidly evolving Mm. policy space.
2: Mary Crooks heads up Victorian Women's Trust, the first Australian organisation to implement a menstrual and menopause policy four years ago. But how does it work? Uh, Look, it's very simple. It has three tiers. The first is that
0: if someone is Mm-hmm. At the paid workplace, but feeling pretty uncomfortable during a time of uh, having a period or menopausal symptoms, they can actually have permission to move around the office, find a place where they can rest a bit. The second position is that if you're feeling uncomfortable in terms of thinking you can work from home, but it would be best not to be in the office, your remote office policy kicks in. And the third position, Lisa, is that if you're feeling so uncomfortable that it would be better actually if you didn't work on that day, then you can have up to 12 days of paid uh, menstrual leave a year. Uh, So we've had that policy, as you say, for four years. In our small office with just a slightly over a dozen women, we've, uh, I think now running up to about 20 days, have been taken over four years across the office.
2: There's a wave of change going on with more and more Australian organisations implementing menstrual and menopause policies. And the UK is getting on board as well. Sydney Kalusi.
6: The Channel 4 case is really interesting. So they introduced a menopause policy on World Menopause Day in 2019. So one thing I really like about the channel for policy is that it's not prescriptive at all. It can be adjusted to individual circumstances, which I think is really important because one thing that academic research shows is that while some people may have debilitating symptoms, this isn't the case for others. And there's a real diversity in how people experience menopause and over what length of time. So, for example, some of their policy options for menopause management at work include uh, access to desk fans and. In order to control temperature, access to a quiet or cool room, flexible working arrangements so that employees can take more breaks or time away from their computer, or sometimes employees might want to start earlier and finish earlier in order to avoid like peak travel time. Employees can also request independent uh, working environment assessments to ensure that their physical surroundings are in no way making their symptoms worse. And Mary says
2: it's vital for women struggling with menopause to have policies to back them up. We know examples
0: through menopause that there are women in workplaces where they feel um, embarrassed, they can't talk to anybody, they certainly are not likely to talk to a male manager if the vibe is unresponsive. Women feeling that they have to obfuscate, they have to say they need to take sick leave because they're not feeling great. And our point is that Well, it's not an illness. So you shouldn't have to use sick leave. We know anecdotally that there are women who struggle through their 50s in that they might be going up a career path, up into senior management, for instance, at exactly the same time that they're experiencing hot flushes and temperature changes and they're having to work in really stuffy offices. They can't get fresh air. Uh, The temperature is set probably at men's temperature and not women's. So you know, there's a good example, I think, where our workplaces are not catching up to being modern and productive for all all people.
2: And Mary, what's one message to women who are listening now, who might be going through menopause right now, if you had that one message, what would it be? Understand
0: that this is a pretty awesome cycle of life that we all go through. Uh, we need to be looking out for one another. In our workplaces, we need to provide empathic culture Women need to be able to self-care, look after themselves. Uh, it's not a criminal offence, it's not a hanging offence to go through menopause. We have every right to be in the paid workplace. We have every right to do what workplaces can to make them comfortable and supportive and to enhance people's productivity.
2: I asked Thea O'Connor what leaders need to do to help.
1: Importantly, what leaders can communicate is that they really value their midlife workers, and this is men as well as women, that there is a career path for them in this organisation and that attending to health issues at different life stages is something that they are keen to support. They're the kind of messages that leaders can be putting out there and acknowledging this is a natural stage in the life cycle that every woman goes through. So why wouldn't we, you know, want to treat women according to the true design of their bodies and it would also be great if leaders could talk about the upside of employing you know talented experienced women and often once you know we go through this life stage we can come out pretty in our authority and with a lot of wisdom and an ability to speak straight without so much people pleasing going on and they're wonderful assets for an organisation to have.
2: And last words to Melissa McGowan.
5: Some people might ask, can we just get on with it? And I mean, I think we can. I don't think we're looking for, you know, women to have any sort of special dispensation or step aside. But I think that's why I am passionate about reducing some of the stigma and talking about it more, because a lot of the women who have made it have made it with significant challenge and struggle. And that is evident to, well, their families, their friends, and often their teams and people in the organisation. I can think of two organisations I've been with where younger women emerging leaders are kind of looking up and saying, no thanks, not that. Like if that's kind of what I'm up for. So I just wonder if we can find ways to grow confidence and solidarity in the more senior ranks of leadership not in a way like it's a cop-out, but really, you know, helping women stay in the game. Because again, I've seen so many women sort of step aside or opt out because it all gets too challenging. And, and you know, your body eventually will tell you that high stress levels is not, is not okay. That's certainly what happened with me. So I guess as senior women who have made it, I I just wonder if not talking about these things has more negative consequences for those who are coming after us.
2: I don't know about you, but hearing those women's stories was both heartbreaking and inspiring and something has to change. Does any of this resonate with you? We'd love you to join this conversation. You can follow me on LinkedIn and leave a comment on my post there to contribute to this crucial conversation about menopause at work. And before you go, I wanted to share another great podcast from the ABC that I've been finding super helpful.
1: Hello, Maggie Dent here from Parental As Anything. I don't know if there's ever been a tougher time to be a parent. Seriously. So I want to answer your big worries and your big questions and hopefully relieve you of that niggling self-doubt that plagues pretty much every parent on the planet. In Parental was anything you'll get super practical and useful tips and advice about everything from bedwetting and fighting siblings to how to bring up teenagers and stay sane. And also, we're all about parents giving themselves a break. Make sure you put your phone down
4: when the children are present. Well, I can only parent because I've got my phone because it enables me to send the sneaky work email or all that idea that you, you're you supposed to be present and in the moment and creating special memories. Well, I want to create dinner before I've got to take the kids to football. That would be a creation I'd be proud of. <laughs>
1: you can find Parental as Anything with me, Maggie Dent, in the ABC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. Oh,
2: we love Maggie Dent. In fact, we often listen to the podcast as a family in the car. Good conversation starter. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.